You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. The ministry of reconciliation is what we're talking about tonight, and I want to start with a story about this lady named Elizabeth Barrett Browning. She is a poet from the Victorian era in England. She lived in the 1800s, and she was courting a man named Robert from Italy, and her parents so strongly disapproved of this marriage, of this union, that when she got married in secret, they disowned her. They completely cut her off. And almost every week, this lady, Elizabeth, she, she was moved to Italy there with her husband living there, and her heart was breaking over this relationship with her parents, and she wrote her every week these love letters to her mom and her dad, and she was asking for reconciliation. Not once did she receive a reply. And after 10 years, she finally received a huge box in the mail. And when she opened it, to her dismay, to her heartbreak, there were all of the letters that she had written to her mom and dad. Not one of them had been opened or read. And those love letters today are among some of the most beautiful classical English poetry ever written because they're written from her heart. And her parents, had, had they opened those letters and read them without doubt, I mean, I don't know how they couldn't have melted in their hearts. But tonight, this passage that we're looking at is God's love letter to you. It's God's heart for you. And so as we open this and read this, I want you to be thinking about that, that this is God's heart for you, and not just you, but for an entire lost world. This is God's heart for people that he has created, and it's a very beautiful thing. And so let's open up God's love letter of reconciliation to us, and let's, let's get into this tonight. Now, before I do begin, I also want to mention something else. The great Bible teacher, Ray Stedman, He summed up this passage uh, with just a quick little overview, and I just want to read it to you guys tonight. He said this, the ministry of reconciliation, that's what we're studying tonight in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, the ministry of reconciliation originates with man, or I'm sorry, originates with God, not man, is personally experienced, is universally inclusive, is without condemnation, is delivered by men, is owned and accredited by God, is voluntarily accepted, achieves what otherwise is impossible, and is experienced moment by moment. Uh, just to, I think that's a great summary of this passage that we're going to be looking at tonight. And Paul is appealing in this passage to the Corinthians and to us that we would all be reconciled to God. So let's pick it up in verse 12. And we see Paul referring to false teachers first. He says, For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. Let's pause right there after reading verse 12. Paul is making a, a subtle mention or reference to false teachers that had, if you remember, infiltrated the Corinthian church and turned the congregation against Paul, or at least some of them. 
And Paul is very sensitive about talking about himself, if you haven't noticed that. You know, he, he was very hesitant to talk about himself openly. And so here he says, hey, rather than commend myself to you guys, uh, you know, rather than comp- commend himself and his companions, he'd rather see this as an opportunity for the Corinthians to, to claim him, to be proud of him and his companions, and to defend Paul to these false teachers. Notice here that in contrast to Paul's humility and lack of a desire to commend himself, he mentions that the false teachers in Corinth, these so-called super apostles, they weren't afraid to boast about themselves. <laughs> they, were, they were not afraid to commend themselves and talk about themselves. In fact, they were famous for carrying letters of recommendation. And when they came to the church, they, pres- they would present them, you know, and say, look who's recommending us to you and look who I am. And they were boastful about themselves. You see, these false teachers, they were not afraid to boast about external things like appearance or the fact that they deserved to be paid. Yet they overlooked the most important thing, the inner character of the heart. Here we have a key thing to remember when it comes to men and women in the church today who are false teachers. You see, false teachers are sometimes hard to spot because 95% of what they're teaching is true. But here's a key. Paul is giving us a key. He's telling us, They pride themselves in their position, but they don't necessarily care about the character of the inner man. Another way we might put it is that these false teachers care more about the external appearance than what is on the inside. Just like the world, you see, a false teacher gets things backwards because they don't know the Lord. Doesn't God make it clear to us that He cares more about the motives of our hearts than what the outside looks like. Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 16, 15, he said, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Did you hear that? What is highly esteemed among men, the appearance, the outwards, the externals, Man, that's, that's not important to God. In fact, the things that the world values and that false teachers place value on, it's just an abomination to the Lord. See, we live in a time when so much attention is being paid to external appearances, even in the church. The false teachers in Corinth, they called themselves super apostles. They boasted of their abilities as public speakers. They carried the letters of recommendation. They accepted contributions. And on the other hand, Paul, he didn't do any of those things. He wasn't a good-looking man. In fact, uh, most Bible commentators believe he was probably a short, bow-legged man. (laughs) Probably bald, and he had an eye problem, you know, like an eye that was running, you know. (laughs) Can you imagine having a guy, you know, standing up there, you know, and just talking away, you know, and not a dynamic speaker, not a charismatic guy. But man, the Holy Spirit backed up his message because he cared about character, the inner man. He had a pure relationship, a pure conscience with the Lord. And because of that, the Lord blessed him and the Holy Spirit worked through him and there was demonstration and power in his message that he brought. 
because he spoke the word of God and concentrated on the good news of Christ. It seems that the enemies of Paul and the church not only accused him of uh, not being a charismatic speaker like they were, but also that, that he was out of his mind. Look at verse 13. He said, Paul says, for if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. Notice how humble Paul is in saying this. He takes what these super apostles, these false teachers, meant, and they hurled at him as an accusation that, hey, this Paul, he's crazy, he's out of his mind. And Paul turns it around. And, and in patience and love, he just patiently explains, look, guys, if I'm crazy, I'm crazy for God. Okay? I'm crazy for the right reason. <laughs> I'm crazy because I'm living my life for the Lord. And if that's crazy, he's okay with it. He's okay with it. I have a lot to learn, I think, from Paul. He really serves as a great example of patience in this letter, doesn't he? You see, instead of being angry and retaliating in the flesh to these accusations from false teachers that have infiltrated the church that he planted with his own blood, sweat, and tears. He comes and he patiently says, listen, if you guys say I'm crazy, that's fine. But just know it's, it's for God's sake. I do what I do for the Lord. And if I'm of a sound mind, well, then that's for you. That's for your benefit, he's saying. Everything's about them. He's, he's such a loving, patient example here. And I'm convicted because I'm not like that. I'm not like that. And I, 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 need, I need the Lord to work on my character and, and develop me. Now, I guarantee you if the roles were reversed and these false teachers were being accused of things, boy, I bet you they'd be ranting and raving and, and, and just up in arms and, and not having patience and an example of love. Paul is, is, is really showing a, a lot of grace. Now, he continues in verse 14, explaining now why he never gives up on the Corinthians. He says, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should, no longer, should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. I want to pause right here, because these verses are absolutely beautiful. I don't know if you are picking up on this, but these are so beautiful because they contain amazing good news of grace. Notice, first of all, that Paul is speaking about the love of Christ. Now, this could be taken either way. We're not 100% sure if Paul means that, hey, my love for the Lord is what motivates me. He could be saying that it's his love, Paul's love for the Lord, that is compelling him. That word compel, by the way, it means to pressurize. So think of you know, water inside of a, a hose. When you turn on the spigot, the, the, the pressure comes up and, and, and it pushes that hose, you know, creates that, that pathway, and the water is compelled to come out in a certain direction. That's the idea here with this word compel. Paul says the love of Christ compels him. It's what pressurizes and, and directs his life. It, it, it fills him with passion. And, and it motivates him to live the way that he lives. And, and, and I think here, so, you know, 
nobody's 100% sure if he's talking about it's Paul's love for the Lord or if it's Christ's love for Paul. And I, I think that that's a lot more likely, and many commentators do, that Paul here is speaking about the beautiful love of Jesus for him. And that is what compels him to live the way that he does. In Christ's act, think about this with me, in Christ's act of dying on the cross, that's an act of love. Paul sees that death as a substitute for all of humanity there. That's what he means there in verse 14. He says, if one died for all, then all died. Christ died as a substitute for humanity. Humanity, or, or we, we could put ourselves in there, we deserve to die for what we have done. Now you might say, well, well hold on a second, Phil. That sounds pretty harsh. You, you're, you're seriously going to say? You're seriously going to judge me like that and say, You'd, I deserve to die? What do you mean I deserve to die for what I've done? You might be thinking right now, I- I'm not a bad person. I've never murdered anybody. I've never committed adultery. I'm not a mean person. I don't hate on people. Compared to other people, I'm not sure I would admit that I deserve death. In fact, you might be thinking tonight, I'm actually a good person. But did you know that God is not comparing your life with other people when he judges you? God doesn't look at you and say, okay, let's pull up, you know, 10 other people in the same demographic and let's compare your record. God doesn't compare you to other people when he judges you. He judges you based on how you measure up to him. You see, God is holy. And that means that he is completely other, perfect in all his ways and set apart from sin. Listen, if God was not holy, he could accept and receive sinners into his presence without a sacrifice for sin. If God was not holy, he could look at you and me and he could say, you know what? I really don't have a better standard to compare you to, so I'm just going to accept you as you are. But God cannot do that because he is holy. If God was not holy, then we would not need Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. You see, there's a popular idea today amongst teachers and spiritual books that are out there that would say to you and to me, hey, anybody can come to God directly at any time. God is just like you. He's just like me. He loves everybody. He accepts everybody. But listen, that's not true. God is holy. He is completely other, and he is wholly set apart from sin. Therefore, it is impossible for you and I to approach God in our own righteousness. We can only come to God in the righteousness that he provided on our behalf. And that is through Jesus Christ. Now that is what makes Jesus Christ so precious to me. So amazing to me. So wonderful to me. Because he loves you and I. Because he so loved the world that God gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
You see, God is holy, but God is also love. And he desires mercy. He desires love, and he desires relationship. And in his love, in his mercy, he triumphed by giving his only son on the cross. Mercy and truth met on the cross of Jesus Christ. The justice of God was satisfied through the death of his only sinless son, Jesus Christ. And his holiness is no longer offended when we approach him now in Christ. When we come and we say, Jesus, I believe that you died for me on the cross. And by faith, I'm trusting that you have died as a substitute for all of my sin. And, and, and in believing that, the Bible says that we are given righteousness. The righteousness that is necessary to come to God. And so this is a beautiful verse. Paul says there in verse 15 that anyone who understands this, anybody that gets this, they don't live for themselves anymore. Anybody that understands what Christ has done on that cross as a substitute for all, you can't live for yourself anymore once you get that. You begin to live for God. Isn't it true, church? Once you hear that good news about Jesus and the Holy Spirit makes you alive in your inner man, you're just never the same. You just can't go back to that same old life. You might try to go back to that same old life. But you know what? Sin bothers you now. That life of sin, that life of the past, the things that you were doing to live for yourself, it's all empty. It's, the, the meaning is gone. The, and you begin to be convicted. You begin to feel bad and guilty and shameful about the bad things that you're doing. Why is that? It's because God has done a miracle in your heart. He made you alive to him. And now you care about what he thinks. Because you've been forgiven and cleansed, and you don't you, you see sin for what it is. It, it's destroying you. It's killing your relationship with God, who loves you and made you new. Now back in verse 16 here, Paul talks about how this changes everything about us. Understanding Christ, that He's the substitute for all. And, and, and when you understand, you don't live for yourself anymore, but it also changes the way you view other people. Look at verse 16. He says, therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Paul is talking here about how at one time in his life, he had mistakenly thought of Jesus Christ as just a man. He had seen Jesus, or he had heard of Jesus, and, and thought of him as just, the, the, just a, a man, who, a mistaken Jewish teacher. But he says, all that changed. As a Pharisee, you see, Paul was waiting for a political Messiah who would come and set up his government and deliver the Jews as a nation. Jesus seemed weak and foolish to Paul and the rest of the Pharisees. Of course, that was when he only knew him according to the flesh. 
All of that changed one day when Paul the Apostle was on his way to Damascus to eradicate the Christian church there. And while he's going, in an instant, Jesus knocked him off his horse (laughs) with light shining all around him and invaded his life and said, hey, Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why, why do you persecute me? Notice that Jesus, Jesus says, you're persecuting me. And, and, and in that moment, Paul was born again as a Christian on the road. He became a believer. He, be, he confessed faith in God, man, Jesus Christ, who became his Lord and Savior. And everything changed in his life from that moment on. Now, he didn't ever not sin again. But he entered into a life's direction. And, 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 and he says something very interesting in this verse. He says, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh there in verse 16. Did you see that? From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. It's as if Paul's sight has suddenly been illuminated. In light of who Christ is and what Christ did for, for him and for us, Paul's perspective is forever changed. He no longer regards people from just a human point of view. You see, now he sees the whole picture. He sees life, death. He sees the cross. He sees the spiritual world. Personally, I believe this is why Paul was able to not give up on the Corinthian church. I think that because he regarded them according to the flesh, or I'm sorry, I think that because he did not regard them according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, he was able to hang in there. You see, if he would have just been seeing them in the flesh, he probably would have said, you know what? (laughs) I labored to plant this church. I poured my heart into you guys and in this community. I, I, I didn't even take money from you guys. I labored with my hands. I built tents. And then I taught classes. And I, I poured out my heart in this community. And here's how you repay me. That's looking at it in the flesh. That's a fleshly viewpoint. But Paul was able to supersede that and to see the spiritual world and say, you know what? I see what's going on here. There's a spiritual war happening. And there's some false teachers that have infiltrated the church. But I love you guys. And I'm going to hang in there. I'm going to fight for you. And I think this is the key in our relationships too. We need a spiritual perspective. Instead of seeing other people according to the flesh, we need the spiritual illumination to learn to see others according to who they are in light of eternity, in light of the cross, in light of spiritual truth. And we need to have that patience to be able to say, you know what? And this person, they, they're coming off really annoyed with me right now. Well, you know what? I'm going to tell them a little bit about why they annoy me too. You annoy me. You know, you want to talk about behind my back? Well, let me tell you what I think about you to your face. We could get really in the flesh, couldn't we? But this right here is the key to getting beyond that and to saying, you know what? Hold on a second here. <laughs> I see what Satan's trying to do. Satan's trying to divide. He's trying to to wreck this marriage. He's trying to split this church. He's trying to get you mad at me and me mad at you so that we won't talk to each other, so that the world looks at us and says, what's different about them? They're just like everybody else. 
They're just viewing the world according to the flesh. That's what Paul is talking about here. He's saying, look, I don't look at you guys in the flesh anymore. Because all that changed for me the day that I saw Christ and his amazing love. That he loves me so much, in spite of my sin, in spite of who I am. I don't deserve it, but he loves me. And he's filled my life with a passion. And he's helped me to see beyond just the fleshly things. And now I look at you and I see, in light of eternity, what's really going on. So when we see people, we need to be asking that question, is this person saved? Where's where's their soul at right now? Because if they're not saved, then they need Jesus. And I'm going to begin to pray for them. And I'm going to begin to find ways that I can share the good news of Jesus Christ. Even if it means I just leave a track with them. Or if this person does know the Lord, well, then why? What's going on? Who's pulling their strings? Because it's not, our battle is not against flesh and blood, Paul goes on to say in Ephesians. Chapter 6, our, 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 our fight is against the principalities of the air, the enemy. Now, when anyone is in Christ, Paul says they're a new creation. Check it out in verse 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Listen, this is, this is the change. You see, if the brother or sister is in Christ... Hey, we don't view them according to the flesh because they're a new creation now. They're a new creation. The old things have passed. Behold, all things have become new. This, it, this is good stuff right here, guys. This is amazing stuff. Anyone in Christ. That means you've believed the truth about yourself. You know you're a sinner. You know you need Jesus. And you've received him by faith. Then that means Christ is in you. And you are now in Christ. And the Bible says, because of that, you're a new creation. It's a miracle. It's a work of God. You didn't do it. You can't do it. I can't do it. AA can't do it. Joel Osteen can't do it. Positive thought can't do it. The word of faith movement can't do it. It doesn't matter. Human ingenuity, intelligence, strength. We can't do it. Only God can do this. Only God makes us a new creation. That word creation is literally formation in Christ. You are God's new formation in Christ Jesus. You know, when I was preparing this in my office, I, I was crying because it blows me away. It really blows me away. There's no other religion on the face of the earth that offers this kind of hope. This kind of grace, this kind of new life. All the old things, Paul says, all of that past sin, it does not define you. It's been washed away by the blood of Jesus. And God has done and is doing a new thing. Every day. Ray Stedman said it there in that summary at the beginning. He said, This ministry of reconciliation is experienced moment by moment. It's a moment by moment process, guys. It's incredible. So, do you understand the beauty of it? All these old things, all this past sin is washed away. And each day you're being formed in Christ. 
That's a beautiful concept. It's a beautiful thing. I'm so thankful for that because, you know, <laughs> this is really, this is where the battle is. Jesus is making me a new creation, but my flesh is still old, you know. My flesh is still the old man, you know. And so there's this battle, you know, every day. And it's, man, am I going to put on the new man today or am I going to live in the flesh, you know. And, and that's where we, we see all the tension, isn't it? Yeah, Christ is making us new. But if we give in to the flesh and live in the flesh, we're not going to please God. We're actually going to be at enmity with God, Romans tells us. Romans chapter 8. So, so we, we have to still pursue the Lord. He's forming us. He's making us new. And as we pursue Him, He does that. He, he's, he's doing that in us. He's, he has a fresh work every day in our hearts. Verse 18. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to Himself through, Christ, or through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Notice that. It's a ministry of reconciliation. God has given us. Now, Paul, in the context, he's talking about himself and his companions that were serving God with him. But listen, there is a much greater implication in this text. Paul is obviously not only talking about himself. He's seeing here the entire Christian church. All Christians have been given a ministry of reconciliation. Do you get that? That's important. God gives you a ministry, church. A ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. (laughs) That's the good news. There's a world out there. That needs to hear that God has provided reconciliation. The ability to be made friends again with. Verse 20. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God. And then here is the beautiful Gospel of verse 21, for he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This is incredible. In, in the context, Paul is, is, as I said before, he's seeking reconciliation with a group of believers, a church that's been estranged from him. Yet, at the same time, the Holy Spirit is taking this passage and he's, he's, he's given it much bigger proportions. Think about what he's saying. God the Father. Think think about this for a moment with me tonight. Really think and concentrate. God the Father basically delivered his own son to death on the cross. Think about how much that must have pained him as a father. If you're a parent, a mom or a dad, and you think about your children and ever delivering them over to somebody to be killed, some, some, some cruel people, Man, we would never do it. But think about God the Father had to do that. He delivered His own Son to the Romans through the Jews. But really, all of us are represented in that. But He delivered us, or He delivered His own Son to death on the cross. Think about how much that pained Him. How much pain that caused Him to do that. 
And yet, at the same time, God the Father is looking at the bigger picture. He's looking at you and me, and He's reconciling the world to Himself through the death of His own Son. That is a loving God. That is a gracious God. That is a God who is seeking the greatest good for all of his creatures. That he would say, you know what, this is going to kill me. But I'm going to do it anyways because I see this future relationship with the church, with you guys, with you, with me. And so God the Father, in that act of the cross, he's actually pleading with you and me and the world that we would become friends with him again, that we would be reconciled to God. He's done everything necessary. The same ministry of reconciliation has been entrusted to you and to me tonight by God. That word reconcile. It means restore friendly relations between. So God first wants you to be reconciled to him. He wants friendly relations with you. That is an incredible thing. That is an incredible thing. And that's only possible, of course, when you receive Christ as God's substitute for your own sins, for your own sinfulness. You see, when you do that, God gives you his righteousness, the righteousness of his own son, his perfect sinless son. And, and, and in that righteousness, then you are able to come to him. You're able to be his friend. You're able to have a friendship with God. That is a mind-blowing concept. There's no other religion that's like it. There's a Jewish legend that says that when God was about to create man, in the beginning, he took into his counsel the angels that stood about him. And the angel of justice said, create him not, for if you make man, he's going to commit all kinds of wickedness against his fellow men. He's going to be hard and cruel and dishonest and unrighteous. Create him not, said the angel of truth, for he will be false and deceitful. To his brother man. And he'll even be deceitful to you. Create him not. Said the angel of holiness. For he will follow. That which is impure. In thy sight. And dishonor you to your face. But then the angel of mercy. Stepped forward. And said create him. Heavenly father. For when he sins. And turns from the path of right. And truth. And holiness, I will take him tenderly by the hand and speak loving words to him and lead him back to you. God's mercy triumphs. God's mercy leads us back to relationship with him. Our sin separates. Our sin destroys. Our sin brings death. But God's Mercy, mercy triumphs at the cross. What a beautiful God we have. A God of reconciliation. A God who says, hey, I love you so much that I'm even willing to sacrifice my own son for the greatest good. 
the opportunity to have a relationship with you. Let's pray.